Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. We have learned the basics of the three approaches to studying prayer passages in the Bible, though it applies to any passage and not just prayers, as we've said. These methods give us some tools that impact how we read and understand the meaning of a passage, meanings we might not see if we have not done the background work. To summarize, every prayer in the Bible falls into at least one of the nine categories of prayer we discussed at the beginning. Knowing which one helps us to discern its purpose and then helps us to use them. The method behind the text provided us with insights into the historical context. The Bible contains stories that took place in the past, historical accounts, such as Judges, 1 Kings, Matthew, and Acts. Of course, they are doing more than just telling history, but that is the beginning point. Even if the story is not telling us some history, books such as Job, the Psalms, the letters of the New Testament, the document was written and addressed issues at a particular time in history, so we can ask what historical events were going on around that time. What cultural values or perceptions, especially those different from ours, can help us understand a passage better? Taking this seriously is taking the Bible seriously. An in-the-text approach helps us to ask questions about the words, the sentences, the paragraphs, the style and structure. God saw fit to have a real person write these texts down using their own language, context, and abilities. A study of the structure of a passage or a book, repetition, The choice of certain words or their arrangement helps us to understand what God intended the writer to communicate. God chose words to convey his message to us. Taking them seriously is taking his word seriously. Finally, the method we call in front of the text helps us to realize our own part in understanding the Bible. God has created each of us as an individual with our own personality, background, experiences, and expectations for good or ill. All of that affects how we understand some passages. So being aware of these things about ourselves and being able to analyze my own context is a way to take God's creation, us, seriously as we seek to understand his message. As you can see, doing this sort of background work is part of taking the Bible seriously. It gives us some boundaries and guidelines as we try to understand it. It helps us avoid making it my word instead of God's word. Not all three methods can be used in equal parts on every passage, of course. Passages that tell us of a historical event can rely mostly on the first approach, the behind the text. A poetic passage might depend almost exclusively on an approach that is literary, in the text. In most passages, though, the third will play a role in front of the text. But all three usually have some role. Often, the three methods will interconnect and the variation of amount and insight is almost as wide as the number of passages in the New Testament. The best way to see how these three methods work is by choosing a text and applying it. This is what we will do when we turn to studying the prayer passages. The following is an example. The prayer of Naomi in Ruth 1, 8-9. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Note how each of the sections below uses one or more of the three methods to explore the meaning of prayer and how it can model prayer for us. The prayer is a petition offered by Naomi upon her daughters-in-law upon the death of their husbands. So let's look at background. The book of Ruth is the story of a mother and her daughter-in-law who show great love and devotion to each other. 
It is also a story of losing and finding, humiliation and exultation, despair and joy. The book has been the subject of many plays, literary works, and films, a testament to its message and its timelessness. Teachers and pastors often cite Ruth as an example of devotion and perseverance. Yet those themes are not the primary reason why the Bible has this story in it. In fact, some of the more troubling moral aspects of the character's behavior are often swept under the rug in sermons and in books. Another aspect often overlooked relates to prayer. There are a lot of prayers in this short book, nine or ten depending on how you want to define prayer. Why did the writer include so many more prayers per text than in any other book? What does it teach us about prayer? The story begins with a married couple living in a foreign land outside of Israel. They have two sons who grow up and marry local women. The father dies, and ten years later, both sons die. The mother, Naomi, is now a widow in a foreign land with no family except two foreign daughter-in-laws who are also widows. This creates a more serious problem than it would in our world. With no male and no family, she has no one to provide for her and protect her. So she decides to return to her homeland of Israel where she might find some long-lost relatives. She tells her daughters-in-law that they should remain in their own lands, the land of their gods. They're young. They can find new husbands. Naomi is too old, and she does not expect the girl's new husbands to care for her, an old woman who they owe no obligation either by blood or law or nationality. Naomi prays, asking God to deal kindly with the girls, just as he has dealt kindly in the past with Naomi, her husband, and their sons. She also asks that God help the women find husbands in security. It is likely that the girls' mothers and fathers are still alive. They could return home in safety with the possibility of remarriage. Naomi does not have those options. Naomi's prayer is noteworthy because the words seem to contradict the situation in which she finds herself. In ancient cultures, women were provided for by their fathers, husbands, sons, or surviving brothers. There was no welfare or retirement. There was no state aid. If a woman had none of those people in her life, she had a few choices. The best she might do was to find work as a lowly servant in someone's household. At worst, she could sell herself into slavery or even become a prostitute. That would not be an option for Naomi at her age, of course. The only other possibility was to become a beggar in the streets. So Naomi's best hope was to return to her homeland of Israel, where she might find some distant family members still alive who would take her in. If not, she would at least be among her own people. Who would begrudge Naomi a prayer for God's protection? Who would criticize her for asking the two women to pray for her? Yet she does not pray for herself. Not only does Naomi ask God to help the two young women, she even hopes God will take care of them like he has taken care of Naomi and her family, all of whom are dead, leaving her in a foreign land alone. What an impressive attitude in prayer. Naomi steps back from her trying circumstances, circumstances that could lead to starvation, abuse, and death, and focuses instead on God's past care. She notes how these young women have a whole life ahead of them and need to make sound decisions. If we could speak to Naomi today and ask her why she prayed like this, I guess she might say, I lived a good and full life with a wonderful family. Tragedy has struck me, but that is the way of things. The next generation is what matters now, and I need to make sure my daughters-in-law are taken care of. It would be selfish and short-sighted of me to insist that someone comfort me to the disadvantage of the younger generation. I prayed as I should. 
It is natural for our prayers to be self-centered. We often pray alone and in silence. What if, before we began our prayers, we considered our circumstances, good or bad, in light of the larger picture of our life? What if we could shift from seeing ourselves as the main character in the story and instead see ourselves as one of the many characters in a vast novel being written by God? How would that viewpoint change our prayers? Write down some specific intercessions or petitions that you might usually offer in prayer this week. Look at that list and imagine yourself as a great director standing above your life. Envision it as a complex story with many characters. The plot is the larger purpose of God. Does this perspective give you a different view on the requests that you wrote down? How might you remember to practice this exercise more often before you pray? That's just one example of how we might approach a passage, but it shows how the three methods open up new questions and new understandings and all work together to make one smooth interpretation. It is one of the ways to grow in our practice of prayer and one that the Bible recommends. Paul says that believers should be able to discern the things of God, and he uses a Greek word that refers to study and analysis. He tells the church in Thessalonica to test everything they believe and practice. Timothy implies the same thing when he says that believers should be able to rightly explain their beliefs and practices. And so I hope you'll continue along with me as we study the prayers in the Praying Through the Bible series. Thank you for listening. See the notes accompanying this podcast for more information. Learn more about the Praying Through the Bible Project on our website, prayingthroughthebible.com. That's T-H-R-U. If you are a subscriber, thank you. If not, please consider becoming one. Feel free to get in touch through the comments or on our website. Until next time, blessings on all of you.